Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, Amos Rodriguez. Amos was born in the Central American country of El Salvador. Growing up amidst the violence of that country's civil war, Amos saw friends and relatives killed, or some who simply disappeared. These experiences forged his survival skills, both in urban and wilderness settings. In the post-war years, Amos worked helping rural communities devastated by the violence. These people helped him to better understand his native heritage. Thus, he began a personal, spiritual journey that eventually led him to the Oglala Lakota on the central plains of the United States and their Sundance ceremony. Along the way, he learned and then taught wilderness survival skills, ventured into the wilds to live as his ancestors had, and competed in the television program alone. Amos's story is a quest for understanding and enlightenment. Amos, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. Your life has been a search for both, uh, both a physical and a spiritual journey, and we're going to get into that. Uh, I believe that led you to the Oglala uh, Lakota and the Sundance. Before we get there, I'd like to understand what started you on this journey. I was an outgoing child, always wanted to go explore in the woods around my house. Always liked to go and see what kind of trees, what kind of fruits I will find out. And I always had an interest in people. I feel like uh, here later, I consider myself a humanist. I also like classes like sociocultural anthropology classes. So I've always been really interesting of what we humans are, what are we doing, how do we express culture. Always been interested in seeing what's out there on the other side, you know. Growing up in El Salvador during the Civil War, what was that like? At the beginning, it was not as dramatic. And when I was a child, I enjoyed playing soccer with my neighbor kids. I lived in the suburbs of San Salvador, and there was still a lot of uh, green spaces for me to go play. I grew up in a church, Emmanuel Baptist Church. My father was a pastor of a church. My mother was a deacon of the church, and uh, I went to Sundays to church. I went to school. I play in the afternoons. I did chores. I used to go and play in the woods. And uh, slowly that started to change. The population of the city of San Salvador started increasing. So these suburbs were right next to the city. They uh, started getting populated. So I saw machinery coming and taking down all the trees I used to play in. I saw the creeks with the colorful fish that I used to play with, I saw them starting to get contaminated, started to disappear. Later on, when I was more like eight to 10, then you start seeing the direct impact of the war. I could see that the conflict, even though I didn't completely understand it, I could see that the conflict was getting more intense. You see more soldiers on the streets when you go visit your families on the countryside and you see soldiers, you kind of like, oh, you know, what are they, you know, what are they looking for? Uh, there are sporadic attacks in the countryside. You can start seeing more kidnaps and assassinations. The clergy was being targeted a lot during the time. A lot of priests and pastors of churches that were committed to communities, they were started to get targeted. At the beginning, it was no like a full-blown war. I grew up still enjoying being a child a little bit. 
And then as the time went by and the conflict increased, then started to get more and more intense where by the end it was bullets flying everywhere, planes dropping bombs, just real straight up conflict war-like. I don't know how to explain it, really intense conflicts. Lots of dead people, lots of massacres. And this actually came to affect your family directly, did it not? Yeah. Um, my uncles, um, my uncles were, uh, one of my uncles was in the National University. He was a, a student union leader and he was targeted by the military or paramilitary or the police, military police forces. Uh, they came to the house and picked him up and they took my other uncle with him. My other uncle was really young, was like 13, 14. And they were both taken by the military. My family looked for them. This was a common thing back in the day. They will take you to clandestine jails. They're underground torture chambers that the the military will use uh, to subdue the the people. Um, Anybody that was accused of or labeled as uh, insurgent or uh, socialist or communist or um, like a guerrilla, if they will just like think that you are associated with a union or anything like that, you could be targeted. And they will take you, you know, they'll come pick you up and you basically are, you'll be lucky if you're not disappear. So my family looked for my uncles for a few days. When they finally found them, they found them in the city dump with a lot of signs of tortures, high irons in their legs, electrocution of their testicles, bags of poison in their heads, just, uh, yeah, they were basically tortured to death. My parents were also captured. You see a lot of clergy, a lot of pastors, a lot of church people were being targeted. Even though my father never like, was no like a guerrilla with guns and stuff. He was just a pastor, but we work with poor communities. Uh, we had a church that had a strong commitment with uh, poor communities. But having this commitment with poor communities made us a target. We had uh, water programs, education programs, uh, agricultural programs. We received money from non-for-profits in the United States or Europe, and then we in turn do programs in El Salvador to help these communities that are being devastated by the violence. But because we are actually helping and organizing these poor communities, the government saw us as a as the enemy, I guess. So they did capture my parents as well. How old were you at the time? I was about 10 when my parents got captured. I was 10 years old. I was able to escape when they came, when the military came. Um, I remember they stormed the house. It was like truckloads full of military people. There were people running in the roof, breaking through the windows, breaking through the doors. It was a big commotion. They were beating people out. We were welcoming my father that was coming from Mexico from a pastor's conference. And so my grandparents were at the house and they were just like beating people out with the rifles, throwing them on the ground, tying people in the hands. And I remember seeing them ripping the the mattresses with their knives and taking away all these cassette players, all our music and all the all my dad's Bibles and all the books that he used for studying. Uh, they were all taken away as as evidence, but they didn't tie the kids. They didn't tie me. I was just 10 years old, but I remember my father telling me I have coins in my pocket. And I, I immediately knew that I could use those coins to get on the bus to go tell the church that we're being targeted by the military. So in the middle of all the commotion, I put my hands in his pocket. I grabbed as many coins as I could grab. And I ran, man. I went through the house zigzagging and all these military people were trying to catch me. I remember the guy in charge told one guy to go after me. But I was a really scared 10-year-old, not knowing what was going on. So I was running for my life, you know. It was like 
they couldn't catch me. So I ran, I remember I ran, I remember seeing this guy behind me, but he had all this weapon, he was not catching me. It's my neighbors yelling, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know, I just gotta go, you know? So I went and jumped in the bus. When I got to the church, um, I remember the church was surrounded by the military. So one lady helped me go through the, um, the circle of police. She grabbed my hand, she saw me in distress and she's like, what's going on? I'm like, I just gotta get through these people to go to the office of the church. And she grabbed my hands and like, come here, you're my grandson. And she moved the military people aside and like my grandson and I need to get through. And she got me through and I thank her for getting me through and I kept running. I went to the offices of the church and there was somebody there that, as soon as I came in, I was like, the, the military is in my house. They're beating my parents up. So she said, come on, let's jump in my car. We went and parked a little far away. And we saw they were taking my parents. They had bags in their heads. And then we went to the Human Rights Commission. That's what most people did back in the day when they, when they were being targeted by this, uh, this military people. We will go to the Human Rights Commission and do a declaration. We fill these forms on what happens, when it happened. And then, yeah, my parents basically went into these torture chambers for a few days. Um, a few days, we found my father on the streets. He was alive. And a few days later, my mom appears in the court system. There was a lot of people from these non-for-profits in the United States that were asking what has happened to my parents. So we were lucky. I was really lucky. My parents were really lucky that we did not lose them during this time. But my mother was, she was raped and tortured by these military people. It was a rape, was a tactic, or it's still a tactic being used by bad people um, to subdue populations. It's being used all over the world. And yeah, they they beat them up, but luckily they didn't they didn't disappear. They didn't end up dead. Yeah, my mom spent a year in jail. Of course, they didn't prove anything against her. But all the court process, she has to go through the system. And eventually, my mother got out of jail, got out of prison. But then we were still being targeted by these military people. They will come to my house when we were away and they will um, just destroy everything, not knowing what to do. So we had to go into hiding for a while while things cooled down a bit. Yeah, it was uh, those times were pretty difficult. By then, the, uh, the war has moved to the cities from the countryside and there were um, there was a lot of fighting going on. Hard way to grow up. Yeah, I, I wouldn't wish for kids in the world to grow up this way. Uh, it'll make you grow up really quick. But, and it shows you what bad people can do. Um, but also it can affect you because of the post-traumatic stress disorder, all the, uh, the damage from this violence. Sometimes instead of turning it into uh, a vision of clarity of what's going on maybe turns you also into a violent person because violence breeds violence. So out of the people that grew up in El Salvador during the time, a lot of people turned into gang members, organized crime uh, clubs. It was just like, like the Wild West. It was just anybody that could get some weapons and if you can kidnap a few people then you can get some money you know it's like it was a difficult time yeah the war ends what did you do then with my church we did a lot of uh, post-war help to the communities that has been affected there were people returning from refugee camps from Honduras, people that have been chased by the military out of the country. So we were helping people that were returning to El Salvador. 
we were helping the communities that were being targeted. Like we will receive uh, food and we will take it. Um, so I helped the reconstruction process in these communities for a bit. And I started receiving uh, groups of people from the United States and Europe that were helping the reconstruction process. And I will be like a, like a guide. I will set up a place for them, for us to go in the community, for us to go work. And uh, I remember I traveled a bit in Guatemala, in Honduras, Nicaragua, and Costa Rica. I started backpacking, started discovering. I was really impressed the first time I went to Guatemala and to see the richness of their culture the different language, over 30 different languages being spoken, it had a big impact on me. I was like, this place is only four hours away by bus from my city, and all these people are dressed up in this Mayan clothing and this colorful, beautiful language, and I just was really impressed by that. So I'm like, uh, why does this thing happen in El Salvador? We're only four hours away, so... It was a beginning of a, of a discovery or a, the beginning of my, my search for my self-identity as a Salvadoran. I feel like uh, after the war, just having a little bit of breathing room gives you the time to start thinking about your self-identity. And I was starting to become a, a young adult. So... It was, I think, the time for me to to think about those things. And traveling has been one of the biggest learning experiences in my life. I feel like uh, by seeing how people express their culture in other traditions, I've been able to open up my mind a little bit. So I always enjoy doing that. Eventually, you made your way to the United States and you came here to go to college. Yeah, I live in Indianapolis. I've been in Indiana for the past 20 plus years. Actually, my friend, uh, Tim Krause, he had, he was the head of this non-for-profit here in Indianapolis called Companion Community for Development Alternatives. And he graduated from Manchester College. And I was helping this NGO with their delegations in El Salvador. So he offered me a scholarship. Well, he didn't offer me. He asked me, hey, do you want to try for this? We can write it to a few churches that can help you with the money. We can try to ask the college for a scholarship. And we started the process. So I applied. I was able to get accepted. I needed to pass this English test. So I went to Scotland for six months for an intensive English course. I know Scotland is a crazy place to go learn English because it was their accent is really strong, especially because I was in Aberdeen, like in the Highlands. So, but I think it helped because it made me listen more carefully. I was like, I really got to pay attention to what they're saying because this doesn't sound anything like in the movies, you know. <laughs> uh, but after Scotland, I went back to El Salvador and then I flew to Indiana to go to college. So I went to Manchester College. And what um, did you study? Art, uh, fine arts. I really enjoy painting and drawing and sculpture. That's what I did in El Salvador. I specialized in uh, restoration and conservation of all paintings and all murals. Now, during your studies at Manchester, you were introduced to the making of primitive weapons. Is that correct? It was right after college. I met my friend in college, Machu. He was studying survival and primitive skills while I was in college, but every now and then we will see each other. So after college, you get introduced to primitive wilderness skills. What attracted you to that? I think it's the same, uh, the same journey that I had been on the search for self-identity as a Salvadoran. I consider myself a native of this continent. I feel like a lot of times we are labeled, like people will label us like a Mexican or a Latino or a Salvadorian. But 
in my worldview, I feel like I'm descendant of the original peoples of this continent. So I started like trying to figure out, yeah, who am I? Who are natives? What do they do? What do they, uh, you know, how do they live? In college, I had the opportunity to go to South Dakota to see a ceremony run by the Afrero Bear and American Horse, Tiosh Pais, and Lakota groups in the southwest corner of South Dakota by Slim Buttes. Uncle Tom and Auntie Loretta have been running this Sundance for a while. Uh, Tom is um, a Mohawk, but he's married to Loretta Afrero Bear. And they, by seeing the natives of this northern part of the continent, I was able to identify with them. It was almost like a vision, like, oh my God, this is, you know, this is almost like, this is the kind of stuff I'm looking for. Like, I didn't know people still do these ceremonies. The ceremonies went underground. They were forbidden. They were illegal to do. Until President Jimmy Carter in 1979 signed the Freedom of Religion Act. Then some of these ceremonies started to come up in the light. But people that hold these ceremonies, they are still pretty jealous of them because of all the damage that has been caused to their culture by colonization. So I felt lucky to attend this ceremony and to see it, and I felt really identified with it. So I started working more into primitive skills, the making of uh, primitive weapons like bows, arrows, primitive fire. And with those skills, I understand that you've gone into the wilds with just those skills to hunt and to, uh, to experience the wilderness in that, that fashion. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's, I feel like it's one of my favorite things to do, to try to go out. For example, I do primitive hunting. It's a really difficult thing to do. Not a lot of people can make your own bow, make your own arrow. The arrow needs to match the bow. Sometimes it's more difficult to make the arrow than the bow because you have to match it properly to your bow. Try to take your own equipment, a stone point on this arrow, and try to get really, really close to big game animal like a, like a white-tailed deer. Just with that, without a gun, without scopes, without uh, yeah, it's a it's a big challenge, and I always enjoy challenges. Does any particular outing, uh, hunting trip in this primitive fashion, stand out to you? Well, no, like yeah, like the first time I got a stone point on a on a deer, uh, that was a big rite of passage for me. Uh, the first time you make a fire with the with a couple of sticks that you find in the woods, you know that was a rite of passage. Is there a spiritual aspect to these outings? Absolutely. So when I go into the woods with primitive weapons to go for a for a seat, even even if I just go for a seat in the woods to check nature to scout. Sometimes you have a really, really important times in your life. Sometimes these times can be very transforming, very, very intimate, very transforming and very uh, fulfilling. Uh, so sometimes these things can happen out there when you are fully immersed in nature. Especially if you like take the time to do this properly, like by properly in my own way of seeing it, it's like uh, with full attention into what nature or the environment or the uh, God wants to show you, you know. And sometimes this can be really transformative times when you're out there by yourself in the woods. And sometimes it's just uh, little tiny things in nature little small things, watching animal behavior, watching beautiful days. Sometimes it's just like a bliss. You feel like happy to be alive. The Lakota have a 
ritual, a vision quest, I believe they call it. Are mm -hmm. you familiar with that? Yeah, the Humbalecha. And have you got on a, on a vision quest? Yeah. The vision quest is uh, the Lakota Holy, the Lakota called Humbalecha. It's a time to go out by yourself into the woods and to uh, basically every time that there is a really important decision to be made that you need to think about it or when there is a, a rite of passage like when you're becoming from a teenager to a young person to a young adult sometimes this vision quest take place also the Sundance that I do with the Lakota Indians is like a big vision quest do you remember your first vision quest yeah, I went to Hoosier National. I went to Hoosier National. I set up a bison hide, took no food, and I tried to abstain from water and food and any commodity like fire, anything that, you know, take no knives, so you're not out there just carving stuff. Um, basically, it was just uh, at that time, that you take out there in the woods. I remember my third day was really, really special for me. It's, 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 it's almost like a, I don't know, like going to like a bliss situation. If you really, you, there's techniques that you can do when you're in Vision Quest that I tell people that they, that they could use. Uh, one is them, one of them is tree preaching, like talking to the trees. Mm -hmm. Even though it sounds a little crazy, the trees, I believe, can take all your questions and they can listen to you. The ground can uh, take take a lot of the the baggage, the bad energy, whatever you want to take, and they can recycle it and turn it into a good thing. Would you be willing to share that third day with us? Just my third day was... Uh, it hasn't been like a really nice day. We have had some like stormy situations going on. I remember this big storm was brewing and he was like, I was like, man, I don't have, I don't have anything but this bison hide. I'm just out here in the middle of the woods the night before had been like, I've been woken up by a big animal. I don't know what it was, but I was rolled up in the bison hide and I just heard this animal like, sniffing around me and i just like got up really scared and this big animal ran away so quick i'm like what, what what was that you know so i was like staying up and then the night before i saw like something coming up in the hill where i was and it came into my thing but it went away and i'm like what's going on today it was like my third day this is so intense i mean something that could scare a lot of people but you have to stay put you're out there you know you're trying to see if you can make it three days and four three, um, four days and four nights. The next morning it was really stormy. A storm was brewing. And I'm like, man, it's like the third day. I got one more day to go. So the storm just kept rolling and it kept rolling and kept rolling. You're, every 15 minutes, every half an hour, every hour, like, I know it's about to start raining right now. And the storm just like completely went around us, but it was so intense. And I couldn't believe that it was not hitting me. The storm, I was like, what's going on? You know, so I was... Really, really happy that the storm hasn't hit and the intense night I had before. Uh, so I started like doing uh, kind of like stomp dancing, like dancing on my own. And I started going to my, um, into my head about why I was doing it. Because sometimes you can question yourself. It's like, what am I doing? This is crazy. I got no food. I got no water. I got no fire. I'm here in the middle of these animals in the woods. What? The, you're crazy. Get out of here, you know? But that's your brain trying to help you survive because you're out there trying to figure out if you can do it. But once you get past that climax and that third day, for me, it was really, uh, really special. I started seeing... Uh, things that I hadn't seen before inside me. And I started uh, believing in what I could do. And um, it was like a bliss situation. It was almost like, a, I don't know, when you're like, you're a lot of candy and you feel super happy. I don't know <laughs> how to explain it. Uh, then the last night was pretty tough because it was long. Um, but then the next day it was over. And it was like, uh, whoa, I can't believe I did that. Amos, 
in all of these ventures into the wilds, when you're using these primitive skills, what's the strangest or most interesting thing that you experienced or saw out there? It's really strange when you see those little remnants of magic out there, when you see miracles happen. Uh, also, when you're hunting, I remember this has happened a few times now. When you are really connected to the land you're using or to the animals you are hunting, sometimes you can see it happening before it actually happens. You are in a spot sitting on the ground or up in a tree branch and you know the trails and you can So you'll see, you will think about it. This deer is going to come. It's going to be a buck. It's going to be as like a, a typical eight pointer is going to come from over there. Then it's going to turn here. It's going to come here. And then it's going to come right there. And then it's going to go that way. And then it happens just like that. Sometimes those, those situations afterwards are like, what? What did just happen? Did I just think about it? And then it just happened. So I feel like when you are trying to strengthen the connections to your place, strengthen connections to your environment and to yourself, and to your ancestry, I feel like a lot of those little little clicks of magic sometimes happen. I remember feeling a little low one time in my quest. I was like, man, I haven't caught fish in a couple of days. It'll be, I really need to get three fish today. And sure enough, I go check my gill net and my set lines, and there's two fish on my gill net and one in my set line. And I'm like, I just thought about having three fish today and the same thing happened. So sometimes those little things make you a believer in like magic or in miracles or in like, in like something helping you or it's your own brain. Like it makes you think about it and it's, you know, it can get, it can get spooky out there too. If you start going into the path, you know, if you like your dreams become very real too, when you're out there and, so you can get really intense dreams too, you know, and uh, it could get spooky that way too. But yeah, I just feel like those moments when uh, something like that unexpected happened, that's when I've been most impressed. When I was like, whoa, I can't believe that that happened. Like, that's amazing. Let's go to Oglala Lakota Sundance. What is the Sundance and what is its purpose? Yeah, the Sundance is this big ceremony. It's uh, one of the most sacred rituals of the Lakota. There are a lot of Sundances. There are a lot in Lakota country, uh, in Pine Ridge. There's a bunch of Sundances. Some of them are very strict. They only accept natives to go. And there are other Sundances that are more open, that they will accept other natives and white people from other places to dance. And some of them that are kind of in between, like our Sundance Sundance leaders, like they're very accepting of other cultures dancing it. But basically, uh, it's a very big vision quest. It's a time of fasting. We abstain from food and we try to abstain from water for four days. We go to sweat lodge every morning at the beginning of the day. We go do several rounds of Sundance during the day. Okay. What I want to do is, is, is kind of stop you there and mm-hmm. kind of walk, walk through each of the stages. After that time that you got to watch a Sundance, as a guest, you were invited to actually participate in one. Yeah. Um, so I went as a guest. I was helping Rachel. Rachel was the cook for the supporters because there are two main camps. There is a camp for the dancers. And there is a camp for all the supporters because the dancers are trying not to talk to people. We're not even touching people. We're just trying to stay on your prayer, basically. And then there is a big camp of supporters where people can eat drink water, and when the Sundance is happening, people travel up to the camp on top. So I was helping in the kitchen for four years, basically. I just helped, and uh, I was just 
really called to to be out there helping. But the, my last year in the kitchen, I was really called to actually to dance. I just, for some reason, I felt a really, really strong calling, a big vision. I saw myself dancing out there. I didn't know why or how. It was my last day out there. And I went to talk to the Sundance leaders. I told him, I don't know why, but I have this urgent calling for dancing. And he said, you, you are one of us. He told me the steps I needed to do to get ready for Sundance, the things I needed to prepare. So the next uh, year I could dance. And what did you need to do to prepare for your dance? Well, there are specific things that you have to do. Uh, for example, uh, I had to make my own pipe. Uh, the pipe is called in Lakota, it's called the Chanupa. It's a redstone called Catlanite. It's mine in Minnesota, a uh, pipe stone. Minnesota, the natives, the natives mine it there. Basically, the redstone is what we use for the bowl of the pipe and a stem out of wood. So I carved my own Chanupa. And basically, when you're doing these special items, you have to do them in prayer. You cannot be just like, oh, man, I had a bad day at work. This day sucked, blah, blah, blah. Be carving your pipe. and No, you got to like have a special moment. You open your, you're working. You, you are given a meaning. The sacred meaning you're giving to these items, you are given it when you're making them as well. So you are thinking about, okay, this pipe I'm carving right now is going to be for ceremony. So it's a special pipe. So I should try to maintain positive, good energy, good thoughts, positive thinking when I'm carving it. If I start getting derailed and going somewhere else and start thinking about my work and my whatever, then I will put it away and take time. It's almost like a meditation time. Uh, you also have to do prayer ties tobacco ties there are different ways of doing those but some people do one a day some people do big prayer ties some people use different colors they are the colors of the direction that people use like red white yellow and black um, you also have to prepare your regalia what you're gonna use you're gonna use a skirt use uh, crowns anklets bracelets there's specific items that you have to prepare and you got to be thinking all year around what you're going to do. It's a, it's a huge, huge, huge commitment. If you are going to do something like that, you're going to take a pipe. It's a life commitment. It's not something easy to do. It's something that you are, if you're not taking it serious, you are playing with fire. You're playing with your life, basically. You're trying to understand what type of commitment you are getting into during the year. You can know if you are a believer that you that these ways are true and they have meaning for you, then you have to fully immerse on it. You have to basically believe what you are doing. So that belief and that commitment towards those ways makes them true and makes them real to you. So you think about, whoa, I'm getting this pipe. I want to dance with it. I want to make a commitment to live on these ways. I have to try to be a good person, you know? I cannot be out there being like a mean guy, trying to do mean things to people, trying to step on people. I can, you know, I had to be truthful to my feelings, truthful to my family. It's like it's a whole, whole way of thinking that you're trying to get into, basically. You're trying to change your life to work, to walk, and what they call the red road, to try to abstain from, um, um, like, from alcoholism or try to abstain from uh, just being a bad person, I guess, you know. So it's like a transformative, uh, life-changing commitment that you go through. Once you do it, then you start realizing, you know, uh, that it's a difficult path to take, but 
It's, it's, I had, you know, I feel like in my way, because of the way my life has been, I had no other choice than to try to follow up on those, on those commitments that I have made and the path that I have chosen to try to be a good person for, for my family, for my community, for the planet. So you spend a year preparing. Mm -hmm. You arrive at the ceremony site. Where did it take place at? There's this place called the Wild Horse Sanctuary in South Dakota. So it's a place that people have been doing ceremony in this beautiful place for a long time. There is a lot of uh, ancient glyphs on the stones. Really special place. Uh, So basically it's just traveling to South Dakota, setting up camp, going to look for sage for your crowns and your anklets, your bracelets, uh, sage for burning. Uh, preparing the arbor, preparing the tree, preparing all the tipis where dancers are sleeping. There is camp day where everybody comes to set up camp. And then there is tree day. We all go look for the tree that we're going to be dancing around. And uh, and then the next day is the first day of the Sundance. So let's go to the first day. How does it start? All days are pretty much almost the same. There is a we get up, uh, the Sundance leader will play this morning star song. Then that kind of tells you that it's like four in the morning or so. Then later on you get up at sunrise and you have a two rounds of sweat lodge. Normally the sweat lodge we do are four rounds, but we do two rounds in the morning. Then we're in ceremony all day and then we do two closing rounds at night. Um, so basically, we get up, you put your regalia on, you line up after the, the sweat. Uh, you line up, and there is a group of drummers and singers. There is an arbor that we have set up for the supporters, and we go out to the East Gate. We go into the Sundance, and we basically do a, a circle or like a, the four direction, like. So basically, we go through one side and we start dancing. There are specific songs that go with it. There are some dance songs. There are specific ways that you dance it. There are some rounds. There is an entrance round. There are healing rounds. There are exit rounds. There are offering rounds. Uh, So we just do this for four days. So each of those songs and each of those accompanying dances each have their own particular meaning yeah some of them are for this song is just for the entrance this song is for uh healing this song is for uh if you are um piercing there is a specific songs that go with the when we're in the round yeah every song every time they change song we can change position to face a different direction yeah, all the songs have meaning. Some of them don't have wording. Some of them are just the intonations, but they're sacred songs. They've been passed down for generations and generations. And and all this time, you and the other dancers are fasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're abstaining from food. We're abstaining from water. It's really difficult, man. It's, uh, I've seen lots of people pass out right next to me dancing just collapse out of exhaustion out of the lack of salts and minerals and water and food and um, we try not to like the goal is not to die out there if you need water you need to drink water we're not we're not there to just shut our organs down and die we're there to try to push our limits or to reach our limits but yeah it's uh, we're abstaining from food which is Kind of easy to do, just a few days. Our bodies can do uh, go a long time without food. So that's not a problem. The problem is when you're trying to abstain from water. It gets really difficult. And uh, at the same time, you are uh, out there dancing all day. So it's, uh, it's like a marathon. You are out there every day on your feet, dancing several rounds a day for endless hours. Sometimes the rounds are over four hours long. So when you are done dancing the round, everybody gets out and you just kind of collapse in your, in your mat 
and your TP and just you wake up when the whistle, the ego whistle goes and you get up, it's time to put your crown again and go out and do it again. So it's super intense. It's a, uh, there are a lot of offerings during the Sundance as well. The belief is that what we truly own is what we come with to this world, which is our body. So the suffering we do by going with the fasting, sometimes there are flesh offerings uh, by males and females and by younger adults. So it's a, it's a really intense ceremony. You mentioned flesh offerings. What What is that? Uh, basically, people, we have a tree in the center. People are dancing around. So basically, you have uh, pegs that you make. You can make them out of antler, or you can make it out of uh, strong wood, like Osage or um, chalk cherry. Or you can use ego talons, or you can use uh, antler, deer, deer antlers. But basically, you're making a peg, pointy peg. And basically, they they just put this peg through your skin, and this peg gets attached to a rope that you put in the tree. And basically, you are then connected to the tree, and that's your time to that's your most intense prayer. You've been fasting from food and water, and you're basically attached with your skin to the tree. The goal is to to pull yourself free from the tree. So basically, when you pull yourself free, there is a little bit of flesh that gets detached. So that flesh gets cut off and that gets offered to the tree. You make your prayer that way. Some of the women put a little feather, ego feather attached to their skin in here. And that's how they dance with the ego feather. And eventually they go to the tree and the feather gets pulled. So there's a little bit of flesh that gets hanging here. Uh, some people have different ways of doing it, depending what type of commitment, what type of prayers you're doing. Some people do the eagle dance, get pulled up in the tree by their chest. Some people pull from the back. Some people pull skulls, buffalo skulls with their back. And that's all their different ways of doing it. But basically, you offer a little bit of your flesh to the tree of life that we're dancing around. Pretty intense. It's pretty intense, yeah. It's uh, it can get pretty bloody. It can get. That's what I'm saying. You have to be a little bit more open-minded to understand or to see uh, how other cultures do their spirituality and their how their worldview is. It's a vision quest. What did what did you see during your first ceremony? Well, like when we talk about vision, yeah. Sometimes you can have visions like what people think of visions uh, some people um you will be like from the intensity of the heat from the sweat lodge and no food no water and from being in such an intense intense ceremony i have drifted off in the sweat lodge and seen things like you know oh whoa did you guys see those seven deer that just walked in here and like seven deer what are you talking about you know no, there were seven deer with big antlers. They just in the right here in the steam. They walked in front of the sweat lodge, and everybody's like, "No, that was just for you. Go figure out what it is." You know, <laughs> uh, so you can see things like that. There is a lot of people that go into trance like, and they see visions. There's uh, that happens. I really like the visions that carry on for your life. The visions like when you realize your life visions. When you realize, no, this is this is uh, my life vision is to be a good member of my community. You know, I gotta be able to be uh, a factor for unity and community, and be a, a instrument of change for the good. My life mission and vision is to create strong, strong, sustainable communities. Or when you see, when you realize, no, my vision is to get deeper into primitive skills, ancestral skills. When you realize those big visions, that's when I, I feel like it gets really, really interesting because then it's just you're setting up full paths for your life. When you get those big visions, like no, I gotta, I gotta, I have to garden. 
I have to garden my own food. I have to hunt my own meat. I have to teach people why I do those things. I have to explain to people why those changes are happening because I believe that's the way to really transform the planet into a better community, into less wars because of what I've been to, you know. Uh, I've been through really conflicts, heavy, heavy conflicts, bombings, massacres, and things like that where, like, can really derail you. And to transform that and to change it into a vision for good for the world, for your family, for your community, for everybody that's dancing around with you. Those, I feel like, are the really important ones when when you are able to start seeing your life vision coming together while you are doing that. I feel like I have been able to do that because of these ceremonies. What are your future plans? Because of COVID, we're not doing uh, in-person classes anymore here. We're doing some with social distancing, but we're trying to develop a curriculum for teaching survival and primitive skills online and with a smaller class. I am just trying to see what life presents itself, you know, what life gives me ahead. It's, it's, been, a, it's been a crazy journey. So if people are interested in pursuing primitive skills and the things that you teach, how could they get in touch with you? Right now I'm working on a website. Basically, I think it's going to be my name, amosrodriguez.com. Right now uh, you can reach me through also whitepinewilderness.com. You can reach me through social media, Instagram, and, and uh, maybe Facebook. I have Amos Rodriguez Survival handles in in Instagram and Facebook. Well, thank you, Amos, for joining us and sharing these these stories. It's been an an incredible journey for you. I think (laughs) it's still ongoing. It's an amazing journey that you've shared with us. We all really appreciate this. Uh, Thank you, guys. I'm really lucky to have the experiences that I have experienced. Even though some of them have been bad, like at the beginning, of my life in during the conflict and the civil war of El Salvador. If you can make learning experiences out of those, you can try to advance, try to make a better life. Well said, my friend. Well said. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.